2: From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite.
0: Waiting times of 40 hours. Ambulance queues, overworked staff and desperate patients. Over the winter, the NHS was under extreme pressure. But even out of the grip of that crisis, even on an average day, the pressure in one of the country's biggest hospitals is palpable. That patient will
3: need neurosurgical intervention, so one of the next things will be is to manage that, to get them to theater as
0: quickly as possible to resolve that for them. In a rare glimpse inside the NHS, a few weeks ago, stories of our times visited Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. That patient sustained. I can see there's a big
3: bleed, this white area. There's a hemorrhage there, which has happened. I imagine it's caused by
4: trauma.
5: When was the last time the NHS felt like it was on a stable footing?
4: It hasn't felt normal since before COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And actually this is probably the worst that I've ever seen. Something needs to, to change desperately. We're
1: for the we restoration. When do we want it? Now.
0: Adding to the day-to-day pressure, right now we're in the middle of a three-day strike by junior doctors over pay. It could be the biggest disruption to services in England so far.
4: A doctor that's gone through medical school, done a minimum of five years, graduating with a £100,000 of debt, is being paid £14 an hour.
0: Meanwhile, could pioneering technology help to ease the pressure?
6: With robotics, all of a sudden I was able to do the same operation through three or four small cuts in the tummy. Your recovery time goes from four to five days down to one day or possibly two days.
5: That's
6: amazing. So, so there's definitely... It's better for the patient, better, better for,
0: for, for the NHS. Yeah. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, 48 hours on the NHS frontline. It's a frosty morning in the east of England
1: we are now Cambridge.
0: and the Times columnist Rachel Sylvester is just starting the first of many hospital visits as part of a year-long project for the Times. The Times Health Commission is looking at how problems in the NHS could potentially be fixed.
5: I've come to Cambridge, to Addenbrookes Hospital, to see a big hospital in action for the Times Health Commission. And I'm really interested to see how it's coping with the crisis, what the pressures are, but also to see what they're doing differently, because this is a hospital that's using a lot of technology, a lot of innovation, they've got robotic surgery, they've got virtual wards, they're using AI... So I'm keen to know what we can learn for the rest of the NHS, what's working here and also what isn't. So far, it seems pretty quiet. Um, there's a few people waiting in A&E, but it's early in the morning, so we'll see. Hello. Hello. This Rachel. Hi, Hi. Nice, nice to, meet you. Meet you.
0: Nice to meet you. Now, we need to find somewhere for... Yeah. Rachel, you've just spent two days at Addenbrookes Hospital in Cambridge, and it's one of the biggest hospitals in the country. You've been looking at a lot of aspects around the hospital and how it works and the pressures they're under. Talk us through one of the key pressure points in A&E. What was that like?
5: So I spent some time in the emergency department, which is the most acute bit of the hospital, where the ambulances arrive, the air ambulances, you know, very tense atmosphere, calm but tense, I'd say. My name is Diane Williamson, and my job title is an, an emergency medicine consultant,
3: and I'm the specialty lead for emergency medicine. Because we have to respond to each and every patient who arrives. So there's a continuous need to, you know, to evaluate who need, who has the greatest need, and who needs the, the resources. Um, and there's urgently. some really difficult mm-hmm.
5: decisions then. Involved. Always, so we're, we're yes. talking about yes. you know patients mm-hmm. who can't come in from ambulances or treating patients yes. on trolleys mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. How does that feel? It, I mean, these are really
3: difficult decisions, and they're made every day. It's not—it's not an exaggeration to say that those decisions will have been made multiple times, even by this time today.
5: And, and, that's and I went to their operations meeting in the morning when they're giving the update on who's arriving, who's leaving, what's happened. On that
3: spreadsheet, It's a, a, a massive is a, spreadsheet, Colour coordinated. Colour coordinated spreadsheet. It's got
5: colours on it specifically green. Amber, yes. red and black.
4: Okay. The
5: screen in front of the doctors and nurses was full of these black and red boxes it's supposed to be green or if things are starting to get under pressure amber but the spreadsheet was absolutely covered in red and black boxes and what that meant red means under serious acute pressure black means they can't operate anymore
3: and then on the black means we aren't able to function in a situation normal we need to we need to make adaptations to our to our work so pattern. what does so that change.
7: what's
5: black on that board now
3: Caroline can you tell us what's black on the on the board at
7: it will be waiting time for the specialities, attendances that we've had in the last hour, the amount of red trolley spaces, the amount of patients that we've had in the urgent treatment centre. Sed-
5: And it was, uh, to me, that was really shocking. Have you got, how many um, ambulances are out there? Have you got anyone waiting at the moment? Uh, It looks like just the one. Okay. And we've
3: got, but we've got six en route.
5: Oh, gosh. So you can see the six that are en route. You know, there were ambulances coming in, three beds. Already you saw two patients were on trolleys in the corridor. There was an, an elderly man lying in a draft from the door out to the ambulance bay. I saw a man coming in he'd had a heart attack.
0: So the
3: patient's very likely we will have received a phone call to say there's a sick patient arriving and they'll be directed directly through Teresa. So we will yeah. have with a heads up we will have made so they a will space have run for 999. them to. Nine. Yep,
5: got the ambulance. Got the ambulance. The yeah. ambulance will have
3: picked up said concerned about this patient. They will have alerted us that there was a patient mm-hmm. who needed to come directly into a resus bay.
5: Already a passerby had resuscitated him and used a defibrillator to save his life. Then the paramedics had got his heart going again in the ambulance and he was rushed straight into resus but there's enormous pressure and a young woman then soon after was wheeled in, she was awake but looking very distressed propped up on a trolley and there's no space for these patients.
3: Because physically our estate just doesn't have the capacity yeah. to have enough rapid assessment base. We think so it's not the, really a corridor, it's, it's a sort of Well, it is a corridor, board. to be honest, it is a corridor, but it, it has no easy. privacy, it's cold, yeah. it's a corridor.
5: In order to find a, a bed for them, they have to move somebody else on into another ward, but there's no space in the wards because other patients can't be moved out into the community, partly because of the lack of social care. So there's a lot of attention put on to A&E, the ambulances queuing up outside the emergency departments, but actually it's about the flow through the whole system. I mean, that's that's
0: remarkable. That just sounds incredibly stressful.
5: The other thing that really struck me is how important the managers are in the whole thing. So there's a lot of Talk about how the managers are just pen pushers and bureaucrats and absolutely pointless. But actually, they are running around making sure that doctors and nurses can do their job and trying to manage this flow through the system. And without them, I think things would be even worse. It's like a moving jigsaw where the picture's changing all the time.
0: And it's almost impossible ever to get all the pieces in the right place. I mean, tell us a bit about these managers because, you know, I think people outside. You're right, you know, have an image of them as pen pushers. Tell us a bit about the managers that you met. So I met several. One of them who sticks in
5: my mind, Nicola Ayton, the chief operating officer. Um,
7: so I'm Nicola Ayton and I'm the chief operating officer here at Cambridge University Hospitals. Okay. I've been here for five years now. Um,
5: she was wearing this very elegant sort of green shift dress, but with trainers so
7: she could run anywhere
5: at a moment's notice.
7: And I'm really responsible for... Uh, the day-to-day running of the hospital, um, all of our clinical operations.
5: And she had previously worked at the Treasury and at Number 10, and she's now come into the NHS. Just, just tell on. me how it's been how over it the been? last couple of months. I mean, we've seen so many pictures of crisis. Has it felt like that here?
7: So I I think the first thing to say is what's really important is that we've been planning for this for a number of months. So way back in the summer, we had, you know, it was really clear there were some good leading indicators to show us that this winter was going to be particularly tough.
5: She said they knew that there was going to be a winter crisis right back in the summer, and they have been putting plans in place. But particularly in the week between Christmas and New Year, they were just overwhelmed. Did you end up with patients on trolleys for long periods during that kind of week between Christmas and New Year?
7: We did experience longer waits in the emergency department in the run-up to Christmas and then between Christmas and New mm. Year than, we, than, 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 I, than I would want and, and, and then we would normally have. What and was the worst uh, day? I th- we will have had waits between sort of 20 and up to 30, 40 hours on occasion
5: people waiting 30, 40 hours for a bed. And even their best plans were blown away by the scale of the problem. A mixture of the fallout still from the pandemic and then a f- spike in flu cases, along with the kind of normal routine things that happen. Um, but she said...
7: You know, the, the catastrophization or the, the, the use of that sort of lexicon around crisis within the NHS is really problematic. I mean, first of all, it's just factually, you know, incorrect. So okay. actually, this is overall across the NHS, in- including here, this is a service which is under pressure, but that is bearing up, you know, is continuing to provide care that improves and saves lives every day. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit with lots to do, we need to evolve, we need to keep innovating. And I think you'll see that today.
5: Adam Brooks is a major trauma centre for the east of England, and they also a specialist hospital for cancer, organ transplantation, genomics. So they are really in the thick of the crisis, but also trying to pioneer new strategies and techniques.
0: On the day that you were there, was this a particularly critical day? Was this, you know, is this standard now? What, in a way, was most shocking is this was
5: a very normal day. How does this compare to a typical day? So
4: I think this is yeah, it's quite typical, actually. I mean, we, we've had much,
3: much more um, difficult days where we haven't been able—you know—where we've been really struggling, ambulance by ambulance. But today, it seems like a fairly typical. Or less less busy than than typical day. Yeah, um, but, but you've what's got hard still to say is what will happen.
5: Blacks and reds on. That's the That's right, and that's typical. So that's
3: typical. <laughs> Twenty okay. to three in the afternoon as well is a time when we generally see that that the attendance will rise now. And as you heard, we've had yeah. an, an excessive number of patients in the last hour, and that's yeah. that's, that's that's what that's
5: usually happens. Um, there was no major incident, no road traffic accidents, no major terrorist incident. But actually, through the day, you could see the tension rising, and one of the doctors
8: Stephen Wallace with a PH and then an IS in Wallace and I'm the Divisional Director and a Geriatrician.
5: Steve Wallace said worst, to me...
8: You know, what, what it feels like now um, is almost like the, the line out of that you know, it's always winter and never Christmas. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and actually, you know, like the height of last summer yeah. felt like the yeah, worst but, winter but that like we'd winter. faced in the NHS yeah. and, you know, and, and clearly this has been one of the most challenging winters that we've ever faced with, you know, the misfortune of having Covid and flu surges all yeah. happening at the exact same time Um, at a time
5: when everyone's exhausted yes and and again normally we'd be
8: hoping Mm. that spring is going to bring a bit of a let up but you know i I think the anxiety that i carry is we didn't see that last year you know is there really the hope that actually you know get through the next couple of months and things will get easier you know i think we probably would be kidding ourselves it's less
3: likely now i think we haven't built the resource to the level we need to to build it to to experience a, a, a better spring summer period
5: They've been through the pandemic, then the vaccine came, there was an end in sight, but now it's just this relentless, endless crisis. They're absolutely exhausted. I mean, they, they must be. Did you get a sense of how much it's affecting them? What was really striking, actually, was the impact on the mental health of the health professionals. So they are trained to save lives. They're trained to do the job they love, which is caring for patients. And too often they feel as if they're being thwarted. And Terry, what was the toughest moment in that, um, in the kind of real height of the crisis?
9: So if we think about December, twice the two periods in December where we escalated to what we call a business continuity incident. Terry
5: Hicks, who's from the East of England Ambulance Trust.
9: Huge numbers of patients. As a regional organisation, at one point we had just over 600 patients waiting regionally that we couldn't we didn't have an ambulance yeah. to send to yeah. uh, and some of those waited a long time uh, and because they waited a long time their conditions deteriorated so for, for me knowing that we couldn't get to patients we were because we were delayed to get to patients their conditions were getting worse mm. that that's really difficult as a clinician yeah. to know yeah. that you're part of a system that's not able to do the right thing for the patient that's calling for help mm. and for those patients who call for help we 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 are often the last port of call they don't know what to do the patient doesn't know what to do where to go but calls 999 because we're always there and we couldn't get to them so from a clinician uh, sitting in an ambulance hearing the calls going out there's another patient waiting another patient waiting is one thing but in the control room the calls are coming. The clinicians that we have in our control room yeah. are having to make decisions on who gets the next ambulance. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't uncommon for a patient, for a, a crew to go and pick a patient up first thing in the morning. They would still be sitting outside the hospital at the end of their shift and beyond because they hadn't been able to get into the hospital because the hospital was, uh, wasn't was able to, so the flow wasn't there, which then reduces our, our resource availability and it means that patients aren't getting. so it.
2: Every day it was compound, oh, as a horrible,
9: yeah. horrible position as a clinician to know that you can do something, yeah. but you but you're prevented from doing that because of the circumstances of the system. That yeah, it, it, it's just it's a very very difficult place mm-hmm. to be as a as an individual clinician. Mm-hmm. The moral injury that,
5: mm-hmm.
9: that that our crews have had and our 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 call handlers and our our clinicians in the control room uh, it, it takes takes a toll
5: moral injury it's the same for the nurses it's the same for the doctors
9: so it takes a long time does it
5: feel harder mm. now than mm. during the pandemic I think it feels that it's so persistent. I think for those
3: of us in emergency medicine, that the issue is not that it's harder in a sense. I think that would be hard to define, but I think it's the fact that there's been no respite for our service yeah. because we were at the front line through the mm. pandemic and we're still at the front line, but it's for a yeah. different reason. Yeah. And I think what I feel for my whole team is that fatigue yeah. and that and that sense of having dealt with this for a very, very long time and, and in, a, in a way which... What happens is it deteriorates your your ability to offer the care in the way that you you would like to do it.
5: The people who really want to save lives feel like they're not always able to in the way they would like. And as a result, people's lives are at risk. I just know I couldn't do it emotionally. So I talked to Diane Williamson, who's the lead consultant in the emergency department, and I just asked her, how do you cope with this? Do you ever feel overwhelmed? Have you ever had a situation where you see the patients coming in, you know there isn't anywhere for them to go. Yes. You know it's very serious. How does that make you feel?
3: I think um, it, it's distressing. I would have to admit it's distressing, but I think the, the first thing that comes into play is is a response. You know you, know you need to do something. And so really um, the, the emotional part of it comes later. Yeah. You know, the, the, I think the first thing is that you know you've got to respond and it's a team response. It's not one person.
0: And the senior managers that you spoke to there, what do they think the outlook was now? Are they over the worst of it?
5: I think the senior managers are trying to be optimistic because they also know that their role is to make sure that the staff aren't totally demoralised. They have to give a sense of hope. But of course, things like the industrial action have made things even harder.
1: We went into November and in the first half of December in in some ways, a, a very strong position.
5: Roland Sinker, the chief executive.
1: And, and I suppose the winding period that we experienced was the Christmas to New Year period. Part of it was the distraction of industrial action.
5: OK, so do you think the strikes compounded the problem? Yes. OK, and what was the impact on the ground?
1: Yeah, so, so the impact on the, on the ground of industrial action is we, we were looking, looking to maintain really positive constructive relationships with all of our staff, nurses, doctor, du- doctors, allied health professionals, assuming that this would continue for a while yeah. and do all we could to bring patients in. And, and that takes an awful lot of one-to-one conversations with staff and a lot of colleagues in the um, in, in the unions to make sure that the services we were looking to exempt from strike action were the right ones. Right. And we were clearly pushing quite hard, but not wanting to over push. That's a lot of time and energy that you would normally spend booking patients in for surgery, or working out how to get patients home for Christmas and New Year.
5: And do you think patient care was affected?
1: Yes, definitely.
5: Yeah. And how did that manifest um, itself?
1: So, so it manifested itself in terms of really the elective cancellations that we saw for yeah. that period. Okay,
5: right. Yeah. yeah. And how has the cost of living crisis impacted you, you know, have you had nurses going to food banks? Yes,
1: yeah.
5: And do you run yeah. a food bank here?
1: Um, we we certainly link in link into them and okay. we have a hardship fund that we do make available when people need it.
0: And when you talk about the flow through the whole system, I mean where are those blockages occurring? So I went to a meeting at four
5: o'clock
1: The uh, numbers that are in the system as a a basis.
5: There were all the people from the different departments from the hospital sitting around this big horseshoe
1: table. Which I then just adjust my calculation as they share it. And
5: on the wall there was this enormous spreadsheet with lots of numbers, patients moving here, there and everywhere, beds, which department was doing what, where was their space, where were their staff shortages, what was going on across the whole trust. So they're saying there's a five-bed shortages in the ED department, and it's likely to go up to eleven
0: overnight. So, so there's a, the, the issue at the moment is we've only got three decisions to admit, so we've got quite a full department, and we would imagine that that number would go. Up.
5: By that point, the data analyst was predicting there were going to be eleven beds short overnight. About 10% of their beds typically are taken up by people who are well enough to be discharged and most of those are waiting for social care. And then staff shortages as well.
1: Essentially we are down, we're also down three members of staff, so we've got two on the afternoon shift that are that off sick, we've got one on the night shift that is off sick. Yeah. And so we are we are going to be spreading our staff to try and cover all of those areas. But obviously it just means that we're going to be a bit thinner on the ground.
5: So the emergency department was three doctors down. And what happened in the end was that some of the doctors who were working just had to carry on and do a double shift as the only way to keep patients safe. At the same time, they were running through dozens of nurses off sick. So by that point, they were... 27 nurses, 41 healthcare assistants down.
7: Critical incident,
0: um, internal critical incident, which is OPAL level three.
7: What does that mean? It goes from OPAL one to four, four being the highest level of pressure. We're right on three out of four at the moment. A number of our, a number of trusts across the region will be on four and have been for a, a long period of time. But what level three means is that We're not able to just place patients from the emergency department as soon as they need a bed because, as we talked about earlier, we're running at very high levels of inpatient occupancy.
5: Mm. What really struck me was that everything was interconnected. So somebody from patient transport was there and they said that two of the vehicles that were due to take elderly patients back out to care homes hadn't turned up, so one had broken down and one had been sent out on a long-distance drop so hadn't been able to get back in time as a result these patients were going to miss the deadline for check-in to the care home so they were going to potentially have another night on the ward so the whole thing
0: really is interconnected it's like the butterfly effect in a hospital one vehicle not working
5: exactly will
0: impact the whole system yeah all the way up to a and e yeah
5: It's just impossible for the hospital to operate in isolation. And in fact, a couple of senior managers said that they were thinking of buying their own care home or buying up places in a care home
0: so that they had
5: some more sense of control.
0: Their entire schedule wouldn't be messed up by missing this one 4pm deadline. uh,
5: There are so many things out of their control at the moment. But I think from the manager's point of view, they're trying to think of new strategies to slightly reduce the pressure on the clinicians But they're also coping with the kind of facts of life outside the hospital. So the lack of social care, the ageing population, the obesity crisis that's creating a whole other set of problems, the difficulty that patients have in getting an appointment. So really, this has to be looked at as a whole system. And that strikes me more and more. We have to think about preventing sickness as well as dealing with sickness you know it has to be genuinely a national health service rather than a national hospital service the hospitals are never going to survive unless we look at that whole thing all the way through from prevention and then also of course social care
0: all the pressure shouldn't be at that acute stage you should be looking at how people are fitter earlier exactly and it does sound like the care system is such a big factor in how any hospital is running at the moment you know you describe that backlog and how it impacts the entire flow of the hospital you know all the way up to A&E is there an argument that this is just something that should fall under the NHS or is it I mean is, is that just never going to happen I definitely think it has to be far more integrated and you really
5: can't fix one without fixing the other. The problem is the two systems are totally separate. They have completely different funding models. The politicians of all parties have really ignored social care because politically they think that hospitals and the NHS are where the voters want them to focus their attention. You know, Boris Johnson promised 40 new hospitals That's not really what's needed. What's needed is to fix the social care system. It's quarter to seven and we've been here about 10 hours now. Doctors and nurses are still working. Uh, Some have extended their shifts because there aren't enough staff. Some of their colleagues are off sick. So they're having to stay late to make sure there's somebody to look after the patient's The hospital is uh, in what they call critical incident level three out of four, and it's been like that for much of the last few weeks. You feel that the staff are really doing their best, but they're also exhausted. But it's just, for me, a sense also of how much time the really senior medical staff are spending on logistics, trying to make sure they can get a bed for their patients, and also... Feeling that they go home not feeling satisfied because they feel through no fault of their own that they haven't been able to look after their patients in the way that they've been trained to and that they would like
0: to. Coming up, the robot will see you now. Could technology help to alleviate the pressure on the NHS? That's in just a moment.
6: I'm Tony Gallagher, the editor of The Times. My team endeavours every day to bring you the best stories, the most incisive commentary, topical features, beautifully illustrated with award-winning photographs. But we can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
0: Rachel, in the middle of all the chaos and the pressure that you witnessed at Addenbrooke's hospital, you did describe there were just these glimpses of what the future of hospitals in this country might look like. What are the great new innovations that we should be looking out for? I actually watched a robot
5: operating on a patient removing a kidney tumour and it was fascinating.
6: My name and title is uh, Professor Grant Stewart. I'm the professor of surgical oncology, which is cancer surgery.
5: It was like this enormous metal spider hovering over the bed.
6: The robot, part of it, attaches to those instruments and sits over the patient, a little bit like one of those car painting robots painting cars in the factory. Meanwhile, the surgeon is sat on the other side of the room, yeah. actually controlling the instruments with their fingertips.
5: And he showed me, you look into a 3D console and it's incredibly realistic. You can see all the organs and all the tissue and blood. And he's operating these two pincers and cutters, a bit like an Xbox console using these two joysticks.
6: So they look down a console uh, that has a 3D view, so the view is excellent and allows very good depth perception so you can you can work out what how, where you need to move to pick things up and cut things you know, so it
5: actually makes the surgery easier.
6: Yeah, so it, it does make it easier. So, for example, the instruments have seven degrees of movement,
5: like the human wrist. And he said it's at least as accurate as doing a traditional operation. Is there a version where the robot is programmed automatically and does it without a human being operating it? No,
6: no, no. So there isn't. Um, is that the
5: next step? Or
6: um, I think that's quite a way off. None
5: of the. But the brilliant thing about it is the patient can get out of hospital much more quickly instead of having to stay in hospital for four or five days this patient was going to be able to leave potentially within 24 hours. And why is that
0: why does it lead to a more efficient recovery?
5: So the hole that the surgeon has to make in the patient's tummy is smaller and the instruments that they use cause less damage inside as well and that's obviously good for the patient, but it's also good for the hospital because it frees up beds much, much more
0: quickly. I mean, that's so clearly a win-win. You've got to hope that this is something that's spreading across hospitals all over the country.
5: Exactly.
0: What else did they have that, that felt novel and new? Well, they've been one of the first to introduce the virtual
4: ward. Tell me your names for our tapes. Um, my name is Gemma Cech. This It's Gemma with a G.
10: And I'm Ian Goodhart and I'm a doctor and I'm a consultant in anaesthetics and intensive care and I'm the clinical director for the virtual wards. Some
4: patients will go home with monitoring um, continuously or intermittently. <coughs> Using our
5: technology. All the patients are at home with special equipment to take their own blood pressure, heart rate temperature and they're sent home with these devices
4: which are then linked
5: back to the hospital automatically okay,
4: that's the key word they're stable we send the patients home that are stable we wouldn't send anyone home that was acutely unwell where they needed to be in a physical bed everyone that we assess is suitable for the virtual ward um,
5: at the moment there are spaces for 30 patients on the virtual ward
10: There's a group of patients whom they're here waiting to see how they're responding to treatment or waiting to see whether or not they deteriorate. And they're here because we're assessing their risk and keeping them safe. In our traditional thought process, keeping them safe. But actually, if we can monitor them, if we can allow them to move around, we can allow them to go home... We can still keep them safe because we're watching them, we're assessing their risk, we're seeing if they're improving or deteriorating, but we can also get them away from the risks of being in hospital.
5: Yeah.
10: But every day a patient's in bed, they lose muscle mass, they lose strength, they become more frail. We've got hospital-acquired infections, obstacles, noises. You can... Yourself, this is mm. a noisy environment, it's mm. a stressful environment. Mm.
5: And I spoke to Gemma Check, who is the senior nurse leading that ward, and she showed me the screen that she's looking at. For
4: example, this lady here is currently wearing a, um, a device the, to measure the temperature, so we can monitor her temperature to, continuously. So if we notice that her temperature has spiked up, we can just give her a call, see how she's feeling, advise us to take some paracetamol as long as she didn't have any other symptoms, and then. Um, She can just continue to be at home. The nurse
5: looks at a screen on all the graphs of each of these measures that the patients are showing from home. And she said that the feedback from patients has been...
4: Incredible. But
5: yes. what about for you as a nurse? Is it less satisfying if you're not actually having the human contact with the patient?
4: Do you know, the feedback that we've got from the patients makes me feel really proud. proud? And, that, and actually, all of the patients are just so happy to be home. And I mm. visited one patient in her home, actually, and her husband said, I'm just so glad to have her back. I didn't know what to do with myself for yeah. four days because they have been married for like 40 years. Yeah. And so actually, that, that made me feel really proud.
5: If they worry that there's a problem, they can bring the patient back in. But the patient, in the meantime, can be monitored, they say, safely from home. And it means that it's possible to look after a lot more patients at the same time, but also frees up the physical beds in the hospital.
4: That's incredible. I worked in A&E for 10 years, so I've seen seen it all. We need the virtual ward to enable the patients on the wards to be able to go home. I think that if we don't try something new, Mm. then... I just don't know what will happen to the NHS. Mm
0: -hmm. It does feel like there is a real push towards moving patients out of hospitals. I mean, is that the future of the NHS? I think it has to be. I think the hospital has to be the place where people
5: go for emergency or acute care or surgery that can't be done anywhere else. But the more routine things or monitoring or dealing with long-term conditions has to be, at home, and technology enables that.
0: It is possible now, in a way it wasn't previously. You know, a lot of people are talking about how to try and fix the NHS at the moment. One of the ideas that keeps being floated, and it's reappeared again recently from the former Health Secretary Sajid Javid, is just the idea of whether patients should be paying at some stage.
9: Mr Javid wrote in the Times, We should look on a cross-party basis at extending the contributory principle this conversation will not be easy but it can help the nhs ration its finite supply more effectively I, having worked up close now with the with the health service and you know I, I don't think the the model of the nhs as it was set up some 70 years ago is is sustainable for the future
0: having seen everything you saw at addenbrooke's what do you make of that policy suggestion
5: there would be two problems that spring to mind the first would be the practicalities
1: what happens? So you turn up at A&E and and we are asking you, you know, that's going to be £10, please. I'm interested in how that model would work in practice. Mm.
5: Roland Sinker, the chief executive.
1: To say nothing of then, are people not coming to hospital, but then they come in by ambulance when they're unconscious and then you deal with them, but they didn't want to spend the £10?
5: Several doctors have said to me they would worry that the poorest people would be the ones who would be put off seeking care until they were actually sicker. And then in the end, that would end up being more expensive. Yeah.
1: I just think there are other places we should be going first. Mm.
5: But I think it's important to look at all ideas at this stage.
0: Meanwhile, in government. The government is making an announcement about the NHS today and the Health and Care Minister, Helen Waitley, is in our Westminster studio. Good morning. Good morning. When do you envisage getting back to the goal of ninety-five percent of people being seen in A&E within four hours? Because you're still only pledging to get that from the current seventy percent up to seventy-six percent in the last in the next year.
3: You're right. So over the next year, to get to make sure that uh, hospitals are achieving seventy-six percent of that, um, I clearly want to see the service
0: improve beyond that. But mm-hmm. recognise that that, in its own right, is a challenging. Well, how many a challenging, more years do you think that
4: Uh, That's not a question that I can answer.
0: The health secretary has announced this new plan to turn around emergency care. Steve Barclay said he wouldn't keep the target of seeing 95% of any patients within four hours.
1: We're not setting out that ambition in this statement because the impact of the pandemic has been so severe. We need to set uh, an ambition which is uh, a a, a target that is ambitious but achievable. uh, And that is what we have done.
0: What did staff at Addenbrookes feel about that? Because I think for a lot of people hearing it, it's quite alarming. What do the medics make of it? I think
5: there is a, you know, frustration perhaps among some of the clinicians that the NHS is always a political football.
3: It takes longer to get to those patients. And those those mm-hmm. time um, standards um, deteriorate. And what you'll see too is they'll be they'll be adjusted. And that's an interesting thing that I've watched a few times where instead of addressing the, kind of, the time well, and making it the, you know and responding the time you should, the sometimes, sometimes the standard is changed. It changes the target. Yes, it changed the target. And I think that that's something that's quite interesting. And doesn't so that the reporting of the of the success in meeting the target
5: What's so fascinating to me is that this is one of the best hospitals in the country. They're trying lots of new ideas, but at the same time, it's overwhelmed by the current pressures.
4: I Ask you
10: a, a stupid question. the no stupid question. <laughs> the beeping that we're hearing, what, oh. does, what does that indicate? So
4: that's a call bell.
10: That's a call bell. And that, what
4: that beeping there? A call bell that's been pressed by. One or two patients on the water.
10: So, but it's really stressful, isn't it, the noise just mm-hmm. here? This a creates
4: a sense of crisis, doesn't it? The, it does. The
0: bleeping, yeah.
10: Actually, we want to do the opposite. Yeah.
0: To then look around and find yourself surrounded by the constant beeping sound of patient call bells, I mean, is that pretty much a, a metaphor for where the NHS is at the moment?
5: I think it is. It's just an incredible contrast. So it is like the hospital of the future,
0: overwhelmed by the present. So much of the NHS and the policy around it, you're right, has been very political. You're now running the Times Health Commission. Is that an attempt to remove the politics and and look at what would actually work? I mean, what are you hoping to achieve with it?
5: I'm hoping that the Times Health Commission can be something that's above politics. We can step back and look at what is working already, what could work better, What technology can we harness to really take advantage of the modern world? So I think it allows us to step outside that political battleground and be pragmatic about it and follow the evidence and not have any prejudices, just look at the facts.
0: been listening to stories of our times a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of the times and the sunday times with me manveen rana and my guest today the columnist and chair of the times health commission rachel sylvester the commission will report back next january and will bring you all of their results but over the course of the rest of this year it'll be taking evidence from doctors nurses and patients as well as politicians and health officials If you'd like to contribute, you can contact them on health.commission at thetimes.co.uk. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.